welcome back to Imago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Imago Day because equality and dignity is what we impart to one another when we see the image of God in them. Life has been a bit much lately. Some days it is hard for me to keep hope in a brighter future, but I'm invested in casting a vision of what life can look like. This week, I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Alicia Johnston, the author of the new book, The Bible and LGBTQ Adventist, where she addresses queer theology and answers a number of questions about the Bible and what it has to say regarding LGBTQ persons, relationships, origins, and marriage. We are picking up our conversation around how institutions often create standards that are difficult for marginalized communities to obtain to, and what a more inclusive community of faith can look like. If you'd like an opportunity to win a free copy of Pastor Alicia Johnston's new book, listen to the end and find out how you can win your free copy today. Our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. So if you haven't already, please sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. That's a lot easier to do than reckoning with our part in the world and society and bringing about the kind of justice that's called for by Jesus and the prophets and the scripture. So there's a reason why people prefer to get super exegetical and to focus in on these really specific laws that were written 4,000 years ago and focus on some of them and ignore others of them and apply them in a way that has no context when it doesn't apply to me, but then bring in lots of context when it does apply to me. Like there's a reason people are reading the text in that way. And it's not a, it's not a good reason (laughs) as opposed to really paying attention to the major themes of scripture and the heart and soul of the gospel and justice and righteousness. Like there is a reason why we are preferring one approach to the text over the other. Yeah, and I, I and I will say it. I think it's to keep certain people in power. <laughs> because if if you can fit the standard, if it's accessible to you, it probably means that you're in an advantage class. And I, I can say and I know I'm a little sidetracking a little bit, but like this was one of my biggest issues at seminary. When I have a class and they want to talk about cohabitation and I go who's paying half of that rent? Are you now going to step in and pay half of their rent for them? Are you going to provide them the support and companionship and emotional investment that this person needs? Like, and the answer is always no, right? I just want to judge you and I need you to align with how I believe you need to to live, but I'm not willing to actually take any practical step to help you get there. If I really did believe this is what you should be doing, right? So even if the conviction is there, there isn't the will to, to in any way assist. It's like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or just be out of our club. And mm-hmm. that to me is just, and not at all indicative of kind of the ministry or heart of who God is. Yeah. And like, let's look at a specific scenario that's incredibly common in our, in our country. Let's say, you know, we know that the incarceration rate for black men, even though for example, petty drug crimes are not committed at any higher rate, but they are incarcerated at a much higher rate through every level of the system, from being picked up by the police officers to being actually charged to the uh, level of 
punishment for that charge and how long they stay in the system and whether or not they get a felony on their record and all of those things. So there are a lot of Black men who have criminal records in this country. And if someone would fall in love with one of those men, they might not be able to legally marry and live with that person because that felony on their record would prevent them from being able to get housing. And, and it could prevent them from being able to get different, different social services that they might really need if they're an impoverished family. And so as a result, as a means of taking care of their family and surviving, might legally be a single person and their partner might live in their apartment with them without letting the landlord know. Because we've created a situation where that's kind of their only option. And then we come in as religious people and tell them they're sinning for cohabitating with, without recognizing any of this larger stuff. And that's not an uncommon scenario in this country. It's an incredibly painfully common scenario in this country. And I, I, I don't think it's malicious. I think it's just ignorance. I, I don't think that when people in our academic institutions or in our churches are talking about cohabitation, that's not the scenario they're thinking about because they might not even realize that that happens in this country a lot. They certainly don't emotionally realize it. They're not just like awful people who are trying to stomp on poor people. Like that's not what's happening. What's happening is a lot of ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. It's And it's, you know, it's not recognizing the advantage in which you are coming to the conversation with. And so mm-hmm. one thing you mentioned in your book, and this is a quote, it says, uh, does marriage change when society changes or does it stay the same? And you start talking at this point that I thought was really good, talking about how marriage has, and the ideas of marriage matures with the development of a society. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that. It's so fascinating to talk about the way that through most of Christianity, sex has been seen as sinful, even within the marriage context seen as like a venial sin, not something that would lead to death. And, and so, you know, all of these evil seductress women who just wanted to have sex all the time. And so, you know, marriage was kind of a way to contain women and in marriage often was seen, there was this idea, I think it was, it's in, it's in the book, I think it was in British society of Coventure. So a woman who is married to a man is not actually her own legal entity. Her her legal existence exists underneath the legal existence of the husband. So she can't, and there's some of this in the Old Testament as well, she can't like independently make a contract or make financial or legal decisions. Her signature has no value, but it's all her husband. And really, that's pretty recent that that's been challenged. It's only been since the 70s that women could apply for a credit card. And it's that same idea that like the man is the head of the house. And so, you know, the woman kind of exists underneath that. And nobody who says today, well, I believe in traditional marriage. That's not, that's not what anybody means. <laughs> like, it's just, it's not because Feminism has impacted the church a lot more than the church is willing to admit. And marriage has changed 
in a lot of different ways. I kind of go through a lot of them in, in my book, but in so many ways, you know, we want to think about marriage as this inflexible, unchanging thing. And it's not, but it's also not just like something that can become totally unrecognizable. Like it's, it's in between it's, it's the flexibility of marriage that also is something that has created the stability of marriage and has made it something that has endured as an institution throughout human history and making it into a rigid thing is not going to help it to be preserved. Make it into a rigid thing is actually going to make it increasingly irrelevant because it's always had some flex and been through it within the principles that have supported it. And those principles are things like a commitment, building a life together, having a family together, if whether that's adopted or not. And again, that's not a requirement for marriage, but it's a, it's a general truth about marriage. Most of these things are, are general. In the book, I actually like make a longer definition of marriage that actually is kind of true to what has always been generally true about marriage. And it's not a man and a woman. It's an unrelated man and an unrelated woman who make a lifetime commitment that involves having biological children. And like, there's, there's all of these other things that really, this is what we've thought about when we've thought about marriage. And the truth is that we've always known that there's bend in these, in these categories, like a lot of marriages don't fit exactly. You know, if a marriage has a prenup, that doesn't mean it's not a marriage anymore. But we generally do think of marriage in terms of couples combining their finances. If somebody gets divorced, it doesn't mean that they weren't married. You know, if, if somebody gets widowed and remarried, it doesn't mean they weren't married because it's supposed to be a lifetime with one person. So it's just, I think sometimes, sometimes the church has approached questions of sexuality and they've done it in a way that acts as if marriage and humanity and the Bible and all of it is like an abstract intellectual idea instead of a human reality. And in so doing, they have placed rules and restrictions above humanity and love and justice and the principles of the law. And they've done exactly what the Pharisees did in their treatment of the Sabbath, where Jesus had to say to them, Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for Sabbath. And he had to tell them like, the greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And the rest of it just hangs on this, but we flipped it around and we've said, you know, love God, Jesus said, here's love and everything hangs on that. And we've said, here's the law and love kind of hangs on that. If, if we can't connect love back to the law, then um, it's the love that goes, which is not what Jesus taught. You know, we've just flipped the whole thing around. And it's interesting because in my studying of the abolition movement, I realized that the same kind of dialogue was happening then because the abolitionists focused on the major themes of the Bible. They weren't doing exegetical defenses of why the Bible didn't really teach slavery because 
that's really hard to do. And historically, nobody thought that the abolitionists were doing that well. Like one guy tried it and I read his book and it was really bad just the, from a theological perspective. I was like, bless your heart. You are really trying to make the Bible say this, but it really does not. If you look at it from a strict literalist perspective, it's just like it doesn't work the way that people want to believe that it works. And so the abolitionists were drawing on like the themes of, of who Jesus was. And they talked a lot about the golden rule and they'd say, you know, love others as you want to be loved, treat others the way you want to be treated. You wouldn't want to be enslaved. Like we need to get rid of this institution of slavery. It's, it's not a loving thing. And here's what the supporters of slavery said. What they said is, to say that I should treat others as I would like to be treated myself is to say that I should treat the person I have enslaved in the way that I would like to be treated if I were an enslaved person. And so I shouldn't get rid of slavery because that's a divine institution that was established by God in Genesis chapter 9. That, you know, God's man, Abraham, was blessed by God with the ability to enslave people. That God told the Israelites that, that they were free to enslave the Canaanites generation after generation. That slavery is presented in scripture as a way with dealing with sin and people who have sinned. And that Jesus used slavery as analogous ways in his, in his parables and never criticized it. That slaves in the slaveholders in the New Testament were welcome to be fully participants of church, and it didn't disqualify them from being elders or overseers. That in the New Testament, slavery was even expanded to which God's people could own one another. So the Bible clearly teaches that slavery is okay. And so the golden rule simply means that I should treat others as I would wish to be treated if I were enslaved. And I should be kind and just and generous with the people I'm enslaving. That's what they said. That's how they looked at it. And, and what were they doing? They were prioritizing their, their very strict understanding of the texts about slavery. And they were looking at those as the most important texts when understanding what happens with uh, slavery. And in so doing, they were accidentally importing the culture of the Bible instead of the ethics of the Bible. And what we're saying, what they were not doing is saying the most important text to understanding what to do about the question of slavery is the golden rule, is to love your neighbor as yourself, is these themes of justice. The fact that Going back to what Jesus said about the Sabbath really can apply to marriage, that the Sabbath was made for man. A man was not made for the Sabbath. This institution of rest was made for people. People were not made for this institution, but I don't think we've taught it as a church that way. But if we think about marriage that way, like marriage is meant to serve people. People are not meant to serve the institution of marriage. And so much of the way that marriage is taught is you suffer through it, no matter what you're going through, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how abusive it gets, unless mm -hmm. they cheat on you, um, like you suffer through this uh, because you are made to serve marriage. And 
I think the church in general has gotten a lot more lenient on how they feel about divorce and allowing divorcees yes. to be members or to serve mm-hmm. in positions of eldership because they understand at some level that at some level, if a marriage is not serving you in the sense of it is not helping you to become a better, more well-rounded human being, uh, it is not fulfilling, helping you to fulfill your purpose, if it's toxic, then it might not be, it's, it's not the best thing for you, right? And it's taken years for society to develop, to have counseling, therapists, psychologists to understand the damages of a toxic relationship and the ways that it's not conducive to health. If we do believe in the health message, right? Uh, like that it's not conducive to health. And even Ellen White in her own marriage and her own unhappiness, you can check back last week, listeners, but to see the things that she endured, she wanted to stay separated from her husband, but she had this ingrained belief about marriage that at some level she decided to be silent and to just endure because there wasn't a culture that said, this is abusive. This isn't something that you need to put up with. God has a better plan for you. Like those things were not even accessible. They were so aberrant in that culture. But if, if it was today, if it was 2022, what we know about relationships and their detriment to health, divorce might have been more permissible. I mean, as an institution of it, it is definitely more permissible today. Um, mm-hmm. And so if we can see those changes within marriage, that this is something to serve humanity, not for us to serve it, hopefully that flexibility and understanding that this is also a partnership that can be shared with two same-gendered individuals, if it serves them. Right. Mm-hmm. And to be a part of a church that supports healthy relationships, right? Mm-hmm. They say, we want to help you develop the healthiest relationship and the best communication, the best de-escalation tactics and the best conflict mm-hmm. management we can to help you have a healthy relationship would be mm-hmm. so much more serviceable to the mm-hmm. LGBTQ community than to just sit here and say, this is an institution that doesn't belong to you. Yeah. And I would even ex- expand it to say, Emphatically, that's true about the help to the individuals, but it's also true that it helps to build the community. Like excluding LGBTQ people has not made the church better. It certainly has not made society love Jesus more. It's having the same effect that support that that the slavery supporters had in their day of making people despise Christianity. It's one of the main reasons why people leave the church and you lose people who are wonderful, who could have contributed so much to your communities, who who could have been helpful in so many different ways, who now don't have the opportunity to contribute to our churches. Our churches would be stronger. Our communities would be stronger. So it helps in the individual level, but it also helps the individual to contribute to their community and their society in a better way. So I, I think that individual, but also the big picture is really so helpful for us to understand like what what God's vision might be for a church that was more welcoming of LGBTQ people and how like everything actually could be better. <laughs> yeah, everything, literally everything. <laughs> what you is- also don't even know how much you have to learn from us. You have no idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that Paul said? There are greater things I wish to teach you. <laughs> yes. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. <laughs> The things God wish the LGBTQ community could teach you. (laughs) So true. As you kind of run into, you know, I know 
we're kind of coming down to time, but a certain clobber text that people run into and that, mm-hmm. you know, might be a, a barrier still for acceptance. What are ways that you help people work through some of those texts that just feel like I can't get around? This feels like clearly a text against homosexuality. Yeah, there's a few ways of dealing with it. I mean, one is is this idea that we take scripture on its plain reading and what it seems to say is what it says. Of course, the problem is that nobody applies that consistently. So consistency is the big problem. Occasionally, when I felt usually really snarky and I try not to engage the trolls, but occasionally when someone's put a verse like man shall not sleep with man, it's an abomination or something from Romans 1, occasionally I'll just put up a text that says slaughter this whole village, kill the women, kill the children, kill everyone. Like it, And of course, the point to that is like, you got to be consistent. Like if, if you're going to see a text in the plain reading of it makes you uncomfortable. And then you're going to say this make, you're not going to say it, but this is really what's happening is I'm feeling uncomfortable. So now I need to look more at the context of this. Now I have to put it into, put it into perspective about the culture and about the broader concepts of biblical interpretation. And, or, or maybe I just need to say, I don't understand this and leave this as a question to ask, you know, So whatever approach it may be that you take, you take that on a lot of texts of the Bible, but you don't take it on these texts. These texts, it's like context doesn't matter. Like it's really plain that the text doesn't say that there's an exception for people who want to get married. Of course, nobody at that time was thinking about, nobody was saying, can we get, can we get married as a same sex couple? Like nobody was coming to the church and asking that nobody was coming in Israel and asking that question. It would have been pretty cool if somebody had, honestly, like if, if like a lesbian couple would have come to Moses and been like, so exactly, (laughs) we do have that in other cases. You know, Mm. I I talk a little bit about, there's like a, a family that comes where there's no sons born, so they can't inherit the land and they come to Moses and they're like, so I know this is the law, but it's not really working out in this situation. Our family's going to lose our land. Can you reconsider? And they actually change, literally change the law. So I think it would actually be super cool if that had happened in the Old Testament, but it didn't. So one of the things is acknowledging that, like, if you want to be consistent, then you, you can't just pick and choose what you want to take the plain meaning of and what you don't. That's not faithfulness to the Bible. That's just going with your gut. So if you want to be consistent, you need to look at those things. And in every single text, when you look at those things, when you compare scripture with scripture, when you look at the historical background in an honest way, in every case, it makes the case for affirmation stronger. Every time. The more you understand the context and what the moral reasoning was that was being used in those texts and what the real issues were, the case is always stronger for affirmation. Every time. Major themes of scripture, the character of God, the whole point and purpose of this whole thing, you know, always has to be our guiding factor. But people are really concerned about that because they'll say, we can't just excuse anything we want with love. Like there has to be some limits on this idea of love. Like we can't just justify anything by saying, well, I'm being loving. All these concerns come in. 
But frankly, Jesus never talked that way about love. Never do you see Jesus saying, well, love is really important, but you've got to be really careful about it. Like, (laughs) no, quite the opposite. In fact, you know, Jesus, Jesus never says, yeah, you know, something might seem like it's really good for somebody. Like it makes them a better person, but you know, you got to be really careful because we don't want to be too permissive. Like sometimes when I've really reflected and understood the teachings of Jesus, sometimes it can be uncomfortable just how radically Jesus loved us and wanted us to love each other. Like if you start to grasp the extravagance of the love of God, it probably will make you uncomfortable at some point because we're so used to being, to feeling moored in our sense of righteousness and our sense that we're doing all the right things that sometimes we can feel unmoored when we really think about like just what a big deal Jesus made of how we treat each other and the purpose of the law being love and a new commandment I give you that you love one another and they will know your Christians by your love. It's the whole law and the prophets. It just hangs on this idea of love. It's really quite radical. And even St. Paul in first Corinthians 13, none of it matters if you don't have love, none of it. And yet I feel like we try to diminish the importance of love and and cut it off when it doesn't fit our paradigms. And it's deeply disturbing, deeply disturbing. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. And it's like, I, I think having something spelled out is so much easier than having to wrestle through ethics, right? Asking the question of what is love, right? And to say, okay, well, you know, maybe I want to define it as love is uh, harm reduction or uh, not hurting any person. And so you can start going through the process of, okay, well, how is two people consensually of age uh, choosing to marry each other? How is this hurting someone? Right. And then you go through the arguments. Is, is this hurting anybody? Uh, and, and tangibly, not just hurting somebody's moral sensibilities, uh, but just at like actual damage to people. People might say, well, it's damaging to the community. Because why? Because kids grow up with a sense of diversity as of what parents can look like. That doesn't really seem like a real damage. Uh, does seeing gay couples turn people gay? No, I think it gives people who are already gay uh, permission to be themselves, right? Like, so mm-hmm. it's, you're starting to go through the actual questions of ethic and you say, I don't see the actual harm. And I don't believe the Bible was written arbitrarily, uh, that God was just like, don't do all this stuff because I said so. And if, if that is who you believe God is, then it's a very different relationship than the one that I'm having where I think he said stuff because maybe he didn't have the room or the time to explain. Sometimes I wonder why did he tell them, you know, wash your hands after you carry a dead person because there's things called bacteria. And if you, you know, like he didn't go through that process. He just said, take them this far outside of the camp, wash Mm -hmm. your hands, stay separated for 24 hours, change your clothes. Uh, But he didn't get into the science and say, in 2000 years, there's going to be a thing called a microscope and there are these bugs (laughs) that you can't see, right? Um, uh, I wish he would, but it made life a lot simpler. But I, I have a hard that. time understanding how the Jewish religion would have actually made it. Because I think people would have heard stuff like that and they would have just like, 
That was crazy talk. Like, that is so wild. <laughs> but the idea of holiness and separation and cleanness was really strong in ancient Near Eastern religion and something that they understood viscerally and intuitively. Right. Exactly. And it's like God said these things, even if he couldn't explain them, for a good reason. And, and so if I can find the good reason why these two women shouldn't be together, uh, you know, I, I'd be willing to hear you out. But I just haven't heard it and I don't believe it exists. But, you know, as we're kind of moving along here, what's the most favorite thing that you want people to encounter in your new book? And also we can talk about where they can get a copy of it. But what are you most excited for people to encounter when they read it? I hope that people learn. I, I hope that people read the book and in the spirit in which I really tried to, to, to write it, which is I'm hoping that I can teach some things and you can do with it as you will. And I hope that it's useful for you in your own thinking of the subject. Maybe you get to the book, into the book and you disagree with me, but I, I hope that you have learned and I hope that your understanding of what affirming theology is and your understanding of this discussion in general has expanded and that you feel that you have grown as a person through reading the book. I, I want, I, I'm hopeful that every reader can experience that. And I really hope that people can understand better the extravagance of God's love and the heart and soul and purpose of the Bible and the scriptures. Like I, I hope that people come to know God better through reading the book. That would be incredible. <laughs> I know it's, it's, it's been a big help for me. And then of course, I hope that people are able to see, I can't give you just one. I'm long-winded. I, I hope of course that people are able to accept queer people, whether they are themselves or whether it's family or whether it's just people in their community. I hope people can learn to accept and understand and have greater compassion and be supportive of our marriages and our gender and our lives as well, because those are important parts about who we are as they are with all people. Thank you so much for listening to part two of Imago Gay, a sneak peek at Alicia Johnston's new book, LGBTQ Adventist and the Bible. As promised, if you'd like a chance to win your free copy, please write to at Adventist Forum on Instagram or Facebook and submit any LGBTQ-related question you might have to at Adventist Forum on Instagram. If you'd like to get in contact with author and pastor Alicia Johnston, you can follow her Instagram at Pastor Alicia Johnston or buy her new book on her website at aliciajohnston.com. If you'd like to follow me, you could do so on Instagram at Kendra Arsenault with an X. You can also follow our sponsors for today, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. Be sure to sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. I cannot wait to continue conversations with you all next week. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship. Thank you.